right, it's a quicker trip. This is great. <laughs> if you've got a Bible, go ahead and pull it out, turn it to Galatians. We're back in Galatians this morning. In case you were wondering, I am one of the judges for the bake-off, and for a bake-off, my integrity is for sale. So, <laughs> if it means that much to you, I'm your guy, all right? So, we are more than halfway through <clears throat> our little trip through Galatians, this letter that uh, this early Christian leader by the name of Paul wrote to these churches in the south of what we call Turkey now. Uh, this, this, this letter that kind of pushes us in a direction that, that, that uh, helps us understand that Christianity... No matter what you've been taught, and in fact, no matter what you may have cultural baggage with, that Christianity is actually meant to be about freedom. And I know for many of us that sounds very strange, because rules and freedom don't seem to go well together. Um, and, and because of the fact that we associate Christianity with rules, that makes a little bit of a problem. But the overall argument of this book, over and over and over again is that the gospel of Jesus Christ promises freedom from both the penalty that our sin deserves and its power over us. And if you remember, what we've said is that the gospel does this by offering us the, the finished and final work of Jesus in our place, his death-bearing weight, his death-bearing the weight of our guilt and, and his life becoming our status before God, which is to say that in him we find freedom. But the, the, the boast of the New Testament isn't simply that this happens on some kind of formal level, right? That this is kind of a, I don't know, <clears throat> this thing that happens apart from us and, and our lives are kind of untouched by it. It's a good thing we get to go to heaven when we die, but that's about it. The argument of the New Testament is actually that the Holy Spirit actually works to make us new, to restore us to the kinds of people that the Bible says we were made to be. Which, of course, raises the question, well, what kind of people is that? What we're going to find out today is that we were restored to be a joyful and a self-forgetful people. So we're in Galatians 4, verses 12 to 20. If you've got your place, go ahead and stand uh, in honor of God's word. If you can. This is the word of God. Brothers, I entreat you. Become as I am, for I have also become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out so that you might make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Speak, Jesus. Speak, Oh, speak, as we come to you, um, truly to receive the food of your holy word. 
Speak to us. Open our hearts. Help us to receive you. Open our eyes to see you and our minds to understand what it is that you have for us. Form us into a kind of people that can forget ourselves for the sake of others. We ask that you do this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So the last three weeks, we've spent looking at the idea of this this Christian doctrine. And if the word doctrine is unfamiliar to you, it just simply means what we believe the Bible teaches. But this Christian doctrine of adoption, that that though we are um, unworthy, though we are, it's not just simply that we, we go from being guilty to pardoned, but that we actually go from rebels to children of God, that he actually adopts us, brings us into his family. And, and of course, like all the other aspects of the work of Jesus, it's not something that we earn, deserve, or warrant. It's something God gives to us as a gift when we, when we believe um, his promise to make all things right through Jesus, and we put our weight on him. And now, a question that, I've, that I often ask um, small groups that I've led um, is simply this. If you were to believe that, if you were to truly believe that, that you have been made by grace a child of God, How would you live? Like if you really honestly believed this, what would your life be like? Think about that. If you truly believed that you were fully accepted by God despite your failures, not because of what you did, but because of what Jesus did, which is to say, you didn't do anything to get it. You can't do anything to lose it. If you truly believed that you were an enemy of his, that Jesus, that when you were an enemy of his, Jesus died in your place, how would that change how you live? I know many of you are thinking, well, I get up in the morning and I'll read my Bible. Good. That's great. But I mean like really change. How does it change the kind of person you are? How does it change the kind of posture you have towards others? This morning, Paul highlights for us how it is meant to change us and how returning to believing that what we need to earn God's, that, believing that God is has completely given us his favor apart from anything we need to do, um, how it completely takes away from us all of our need to take care of ourselves, okay? There's an outline in your bulletin if, if, you're, if you're a note taker. If not, just leave it. We're gonna look at for others, for me, and then forgetful, okay? So let's, let's start with, a, with a, uh, for others. As we get into this, let me, again, let me remind us of where we are because it's very important for this particular passage, Right? Paul planted these churches, which is to say he started them in the south of Turkey, and and as he's going through the Mediterranean, he plants these churches, and he moves on somewhere else, and when he moved on, some other guys came in, some other teachers. You're Jewish, and one of the things they said to these Galatians, they said, yes, yes, Jesus is great. Yes, we're all about Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's great, but hate to tell you, you folks who are not Jewish, but if you want to be part of the Jewish Messiah, you know you have to be Jewish, right? Like, you got to take on the signs. You got to take on the, the things that make us distinctly Jewish, right? You have to take on this, these dietary laws. You got to eat the right things. You got you to work on the right days. You got to go under the knife, guys. Like, this is just what happens. And so, Paul hears this. And he responds that any attempt to trust in your actions, your obedience, your rule keeping, 
and as we saw last week, even your biblical rule keeping, right? To make things right between you and God is a return to paganism. It's a return to false religion. Okay? So, now, given that that's what he said, let's pick it up in verse 13. Paul says, Become like me since I became like you. You didn't mean no wrong. Now, what Paul is doing here is he's calling them back to the freedom which they originally had when they first became Christians. He's calling them to remember what it was like. Okay, so he continues. You know that it was because of a weakness of the flesh that I first, first preached the gospel to you. Now, scholars aren't exactly sure what he's talking about. Um, it seems as if uh, Paul had some kind of illness, some kind of ailment. Some think because of what's being said a little later that had to do with his eyes. We don't really know. All we know is that Paul's saying, like, look, um, I got sick. I needed to recover there instead of going on to Greece. And Paul came in a, in a state of weakness. But he continues. He says, though my condition was a trial to you, you didn't despise me or reject me, but received me as an angel of God as Christ Jesus himself. Okay? So in other words, Paul's returning to their original relationship. He's saying, look, I know these guys came in and they said some weird things to you, but this is me, y'all. Like, this is me. You remember me, right? You remember what, you remember what things were like? I was weak. I, I didn't come showboating. I didn't come with this message of grand strength and greatness. I came sick, and y'all took care of me. I came hurting, and, and you all received me like, like I was Jesus himself. Their treatment of him gets even better, though. Look at the last part of verse 15. Paul says, I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your own eyes in giving them to me. Whoa. Okay, here's what this is. Like I said, some scholars think that this is pointing to the fact that Paul's illness, his weakness, had to do with his eyesight, right? And basically what he's saying is that you would have, if you could have, you would have given me your own eyes. And it's pro- it might be a metaphor. It doesn't really matter. The point is, is that he's saying that this group of people would have intentionally given of themselves, literally harmed themselves for his good. Harmed themselves for his good. Paul is saying, you would have done anything for me. You would have given me from your very bodies. Now here's the point. Formerly, he's selling them. Because of the work of the gospel, you Galatians, you were turned outward. You were about others. In fact, you were about me, and so I can talk about it when it comes to me. You were willing to sacrifice your own sight, even if it was only metaphorically, but you were willing to do, go that far for another person. What would be life be like if Jesus has given you everything? You're willing to give away anything. Do you see that? See, if you believe that Jesus has given you everything, Everything that you've been given, everything that you've been gifted, everything that's been graced to you, that he's given you acceptance with God and you can't lose it because you didn't earn it, then, then you are moved to give up of the lesser things. But that's the problem, isn't it? That assumes that we believe those things are lesser things. If Jesus has given you everything, you can give away anything because nothing can give you anything else. Now, there's more though. 
Look at the beginning of verse 15 for a pivotal question. Right in the middle of this, Paul asks, where is your blessedness? Now, let me be honest. I'm not a big fan of that translation, but not because, the, because of the way it translates the word, because of where our culture understands blessedness, right? Because half of y'all have that sign in your house that says, too blessed to be stressed. I don't even know what that means. I'm sure it makes a good wall thing, right? But because we don't understand what the word blessing means, right? So Jesus uses this. He uses it in um, the Sermon on the Mount, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Blessed are those who mourn, all of these things. It, sometimes you could translate it happy, but that doesn't make any sense. Happy are those who mourn. That doesn't make any sense. So what, what exactly is getting across with this word blessedness? Um, the word in its original can be translated happy or happiness or blessedness or joy. But the problem is, is that these aren't quite adequate because of our therapeutic culture. Ultimately, what it means is flourishing. Someone's flourishing. Someone's utter satisfaction in the fact that they have that, that, that deep soul flourishing. It, it, and the Bible would argue it comes from being restored to the God that you and I were made for. It's more like rest, right? Uh, Church Father St. Augustine um, famously began his, 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 book, his little book called The Confessions um, with the phrase like, you have, Oh Lord, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And that's what he's talking about here. That is joy. That is blessedness. That is true happiness. And that's what seemingly, Paul says, these Galatians, it's gone. It was there, but it's gone. That rest, that flourishing, that joy is just gone. You ever experienced that? You ever experienced the idea of, of that rest, that flourishing? Have you ever truly experienced that, like, maybe better, do you want to? Do you want to? I mean, I do. <laughs> Let me tell you, uh, this week, I woke up Thursday, and I was just jacked up emotionally. I was anxious, struggling with my brokenness, struggling with whether or not I could be accepted in the midst of my brokenness. I needed that joy. I needed that rest. And if I'm being honest with you, it was really hard to come by. It was really hard to come by in the moment. But getting it is all about the gospel. Here's why. When you know that you are fully known by God, when I say that, listen, there's the you that people know, right? Some of us have varying degrees of vulnerability. So there's the you that people know. Some people know more of your junk than others. Some people know just enough junk for them to think that you're really vulnerable and you keep the rest to yourself. So then there's the, the you that you know. And then there's the you that God knows. Because the, God, the you that God knows is the you that, that can't self-deceive. That can't walk around and say, this isn't really a problem in me. You know, I'm fully in control of this. I've got this. It's, no, it's okay. Like, you know, yeah, yeah, okay, I had a little too much last time, but I'll be fine this time. Or, yeah, I mean, I know I ran off the rails, but I'll be okay this time. I'm in control of this. this the, God, the you that God knows, knows everything about you. But if you know that even when he knows everything about you, 
that he knows the problem is way worse than you think it is. And yet, you're completely loved by him. Right? That, that, that sense of being known normally produces fear. That, that fear of like, what is someone going to do with me? But, but if you know that you're completely loved, that you're known and loved, known in your failures, known in your shame, known in the midst of harm that you've done to those close to you, known in the, the, the dark um, thoughts that you have on those days when you're by yourself, known in the harm that you've done to others, but loved in Jesus, your failures covered, your harms made right, your soul healed. Think with me, if that's the case, there's nothing left to hide. There's nothing left to strive for. But if you return to thinking that God needs you to serve him, that he, that he wants something from you, that he needs you to keep the rules, needs you to work to get his smile, what happens to that satisfaction? What happens to that rest? I mean, I can tell you, and you know, because half of us walked in there this morning like this. It disappears. It's gone. It can't stand. And Paul's clear implication is that faith in Christ produces a satisfaction a joy because of what we've been given. And that is what the Galatians are missing. Okay? Now, there's something else present here, though. Uh, let's look at it. Uh, as he's talking about self-centered service. Look down at verse 17. Paul says, They, and when he says they, he's talking about these other teachers that have come in. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out so that you will make much of them. All right? Here's what Paul's saying. Paul is unmasking the hearts of these false teachers. He's unmasking their hearts. He's saying, let me tell you what's actually going on here. In contrast to the self-giving of the Galatians, right? So they're willing to give their eyes. Paul's saying that these folks, all they're doing has to do not with you, it has to do with them. He's saying, here's what their religion produces. They make much of you, okay? That word, that, that, that word make much of is the same word that you would use for wooing someone into marriage, Right? It's, it's about courting. And Paul's saying, yeah, they're romancing you, but not for your good. They're romancing you for them. Here's what Paul means. Ultimately, their efforts are to make a name for themselves. It's to make a name for themselves. They want those converts for them. See, whereas the Galatians back in the day were willing to give of themselves for Paul because of their faith in Jesus, these these quote-unquote teachers are simply trying to use the Galatians for their own name. Trying to make a name for themselves. There's, you know, look at what I did. Look at my converts. Look how many followers I have. And it becomes a basis for self-righteousness, right? When we believe that what we do makes God like us, then the good that we do isn't for those that we do it for. It's for us. Right? When we believe that what we do makes God like us or not, then the good that we do is simply a means to an end. The people we help are simply a means to an end. Let me be really clear. When we go into a situation, maybe, maybe that situation is helping the downtrodden. Right, We're helping the poor, we're helping the broken, we're helping all these folks, but we're doing it because we feel guilty we're doing it because, um, because we're trying to make up for something else in our lives. I know that on the outside, 
it looks like you are a rock star. But on the inside, God's going, you're using them. You're using them for you. That service isn't done because you're willing to give away everything because Jesus has given you everything. No, no, no. It's, it's because you're trying to get and you're using them to get. Now, I don't care what, whether your cause is political, environmental, nutritional, economic, spiritual. doesn't really matter. When we make that case ultimate in our lives, winning others to it gives us something. It gives us a sense of being right. It gives us a, a sense of uh, uh, that we're doing our part. Our gives us a perspective of value, whatever. In other words, what Paul is saying is like, look, if you leave the blessedness, whatever you're going to do for others, you're going to do to get that name for yourself. When we operate for our rightness and not from our rightness, we are a slave to whatever we think will make us right. It will always be ultimately about us. You with me? See, this is one of the reasons that, that Christianity works to get to the heart instead of the behavior. Because if it's just about behavior and it's just about serving, then go serve. But Jesus is saying, then Paul is saying, like, no, 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 this is about your heart. Where is your heart? Are you trying to get something from this? Even if it's just like, I, you know what, I like to get good feelings. I feel good from the... So you're, you're using people to get good feelings? Is, is that what this is about? Paul pulls us back there in verse 18 so that we aren't tempted to think, like I said, that this is an issue of behavior. Look there. Paul says, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm with you. Here's what that means. Paul is saying, listen, guys, seeking to win you over isn't necessarily bad. I did that. It's like I was doing that. I was trying to help you get to Jesus. I was trying to romance you into the kingdom myself. And I'm not just saying, like, it's only bad if I'm the one doing it. He's saying, no, 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 no. That, that's fine. The issue isn't what, the issue is why, right? If you get nothing else from this time, from, from anything that I'm saying here, please get the fact that what Paul is consistently pointing at is the fact that the issue is with our hearts. It's with our hearts. Our problem is not our behavior, it's our hearts. See, Paul's time in Galatia was to make converts. That's what he was there doing. It's not, like he, it's not like he's just hating on these teachers for coming in trying to do the same thing he was doing. He's like, no, 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 that's, that, that's not the point. But his motive, Paul's motive, wasn't for him. He didn't need the Galatians' approval. He wasn't, he wasn't there because he's like, I, I'm trying to make a following for myself. I'm trying to get, you know, more likes on my posts. Like, I'm, I'm trying to get all these things. He was there for them. He was there seeking to see them come to Jesus for two reasons. One, Paul was absolutely enraptured by the grace of Jesus. And he cherished Jesus so much he couldn't help but commend him. And two, because he knew that the Galatians would flourish, that they'd be satisfied, that they'd have joy only in being reconciled to God through Jesus. You notice what's missing? Anything about Paul. None of this had to do with him. 
Paul didn't need converts to make him feel good about himself or to make him believe that God liked him. Paul's life is bound up in Jesus. It's bound up in what he's done for him. And his status before God was bound up in Jesus. His satisfaction is bound up in Jesus. His his safety is bound up in Jesus. And in light of that, he could say, I don't, you know, forget Paul. I'm going to go and seek the good of the Galatians. See, I I think this is part of what Paul's saying. He would have been fine if these teachers had come in and just done more work in the gospel. Some of you are familiar with Paul's writing. I mean, think about the 1 Corinthians, right? He's, he says that. I planted, Paulus watered, God gave the growth. He's like, I don't care. Don't follow me. I'm not worried about you following me, and I'm not threatened by Apollos. If he's going to come in and preach the gospel, more power to him. That's not the point. That's not the point. Paul isn't looking for groupies. And this is the point that makes Christianity different from every other system out there. It begins with our problem, right? Other other systems, uh, religions, um, Islam, Buddhism, Taoism, like all of these different things, they they start with this sense that that, um, that, they say that our issue is bad behavior, that we just need to kind of get in line, right? With, With Islam, it's like you have to you have to be obedient to Allah. You have to do these things, and maybe then he'll be merciful to you. And with Buddhism, it's okay. You have to do these things and detach yourself from life so that you can finally enter into non-existence. All of these things are like, here's all the things you have to do, but Christianity says the problem is way worse than what you do. It's way worse. It's out of the heart that all of those bad things come, Jesus said. And you, You and I, we can't change our hearts. We can change our behavior. Some of us are better at it than others. If we're being honest, I'm not very good at it. Some of you are great at it. But we can't change our hearts. We need someone else to do that. But when our hearts have been changed and we have trusted in Jesus, we are freed from self-regard. Eh, no. Let me explain that better. The lie in the garden was that you could and you had to be independent of God. Right? That was the lie in the garden. And when we believed that, we turned away, we became guilty, and we became so uh, stuck in that lie that now every one of us by nature is like, I got to look out for me. I got to look out for number one. I've, I, I don't have to be dependent. Well, that's what we think. Instead, I can be independent, but if I'm going to get my status, my security, and my satisfaction, I've got to do it. I've got to look out for me. And we're stuck there. But if Jesus has provided those things for us, it turns us outward. It turns us outward towards others because there's nothing that anything can give us if Jesus has given us everything. It turns us outwards because we were made for self-forgetfulness that seeks the flourishing of others instead of ourselves. Let me speak in a more applied manner, if I can, first by talking about satisfaction. If you're a Christian this morning, this question is especially for you. And if you're not, I'm not saying you can't listen. I think you need to hear this too, because I think this is important for all of us. But if you're a Christian this morning, where is your joy? And listen, I don't mean, I don't mean the Ned Flanders, naive, Pollyanna joy. Hey, diddly-do, neighbor. That's not what I'm talking about, Okay. I'm not talking about that. Because the Psalms talk about joy in the midst of struggle and suffering. 
It's not talking about you being happy with everything. It's talking about this kind of this kind of rest, this kind of soul satisfaction. So where is your joy? And I know that as soon as I say that, especially because this is a Reformed church, rather intellectual tradition, right? Some of us are going to be like, Rick, what does emotion have to do with this? I, I, uh, I do what God asked me to do. I don't need my emotions. I have two. Anger and determination. Those are my two emotions. <laughs> I know you. It's all right, dudes. I get it. I do what God asked me to do. Do you? Because see, the scriptures tell us to delight in the Lord. To delight in Him. To rejoice always in the Lord. Always. Right? The gospel is meant to produce joy. It's meant to produce this, this kind of soul satisfaction, this rest now, again, does this mean that you're going to walk around with a stupid grin on your face all the time and just kind of be like, hey, too blessed to be stressed? No, that's not what it means. Grief is a part of the Christian experience. Joy, this is why this translation is so hard, because joy, as the Bible defines it, and happy are two different things. Feeling rest in the midst of grief is only possible because of Jesus. Here's why. Scriptures tell us we're made for God, that we were made for a relationship with him, that our hearts are made to find contentment and rest and joy in him. You know all those desires that you seem to have that you just can't seem to satisfy? It's like, I can't ever get enough. And you're convinced that the reason is because of you. <laughs> it's just like, there's something wrong with me that I can't get this. I know because... TV tells me and the internet tells me and my social media tells me that my new kitchen is supposed to bring me joy. Right? The gains said it would. Chip and Joanna aren't, aren't wrong. This is what it's supposed to do for me and yet it doesn't. And so maybe I need another home repair project. Or, you know, my, this, this new car I bought is supposed to bring me joy. I'm supposed to be satisfied, but after two days the new car smell wears off and now what am I... I must mean another car. Or, or I know that, you know, I'm supposed to be happy when everyone likes my posts. And then I do it. But that one person didn't. And how do I get that one person? How do I get some more of those? See, we constantly are thinking that we have to satisfy ourselves. Those carrots that you chase that you can't seem to catch, that fix you run after that never quite does it. Can I tell you, you're not wanting those things. You're longing for God. You're desiring Him, right? C.S. Lewis famously said it, if I find in myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, my only logical conclusion is that I was made for another world. There must be something else because nothing here seems to satisfy it. The reason, though, is because of your brokenness, because of my brokenness, we're convinced that we're only going to find that satisfaction in something other than him. And every time we chase it apart from him, we are betraying him all over again. And I don't, I don't care if what you chase is something less culturally acceptable, right? Like drugs or porn, or it's more culturally acceptable, like getting converts to your cause of the week. Your heart was made for him. You will only find your rest 
in him. Now, this does not mean that if you go to him, he will give you what you really want. (laughs) It means that what you really want, even if you don't realize it, is him. Secondly, let's talk about being right side out. See, the the scriptures do teach us that we were made not for self-protection, not for self-exaltation, but for self-forgetfulness, which is to say we were made to live for other, right? I I think I've said this before, but the the, uh, Protestant reformer Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer, um, said that sin had turned us inside, uh, turned us in on ourselves. But the work of Jesus is to turn us right side out. This is what Jesus meant when he said the entire law is summed up in love God and love your neighbor. It means seeking the flourishing of others. And this is the life Jesus showed us and the life that we're made for. Here's what that means. The idea of a consumer Christian is an oxymoron. Those two things cannot go together. You weren't made to consume. You were made to bless You weren't made to just come in and get your spiritual fix and move on with life. You're made to bless others. So if you're like, I can't find, maybe you're here and you've been, you've been, you you hop to churches. You're like, I do this one now, and I'm going to go do that one, and do that one. And everything you're doing is, I'm going to, I'm going to come in here, and what's going to happen is, I'm going to hear a good sermon or hear some good music, and I'm going to get filled. And every time, it's puzzling. Every time, it seems like after a couple months, you're like, yeah, this one doesn't do it either. Because you're not made for that. The church isn't the issue. I mean, as long as it preaches the gospel. The church isn't the issue. It's the fact that you're trying to consume from it. And Jesus says, you're not made for that, friend. I didn't, I didn't redeem you for that. Someone who has found their righteousness in Jesus, they found their satisfaction in Jesus, is focused on what, if, if they're focused on what they are getting, how they are being served, what they get out of a church or a community or a city, I'm telling you, it's an oxymoron that is living according to the old way, that is turned in on ourselves. But because we have found our fullness in Jesus, because of that, we can turn outward and seek the flourishing of others. Then there are multiple ways we can do this. Okay? You can do that by serving others in the church, you can do that by serving others in the community. We do it with our money by giving instead of constantly seeking to get more and more. We do it with our gifts by praying about and thinking about ways we can use our gifts to benefit others instead of building our own little kingdoms. We do it with the gospel by giving up on the, on the idea that we have to be cool. We're not. I mean, you, you do realize that, right? Like, I mean, maybe you are. It's possible. But I'm just saying, like, what we believe There's no way to make that sound palpable. There's no way to make that sound culturally acceptable. Let me just figure out a way to say that a dead man rose from the dead and he's actually fully God and fully man in a way that won't sound crazy. There's no way. And so we can do it with the gospel by giving up on that notion of being seen as cool or hip or nice while letting others languish under the weight of their sin. We just stay silent about how ours was taken by Jesus, even though we didn't deserve it. So let me conclude with these two ideas. I've already said them, but I'm going to say them again. If you've been given everything by Jesus, 
then the world can give you nothing and you can give away anything. And if you did nothing to earn the joy that you were made for, you could do nothing to lose it, but you can glory in it by inviting others to share in it with you. Do you pray with me? Lord, have mercy on us when we turn inside out again, focus on ourselves. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me uh, for forgetting that I've not just been saved from something, but for something. Lord, I pray that you'd form this church, form UPC into a church that joyfully serves, joyfully gives of all that they are for the sake of others. And, that, and we delight in the fact that, Lord, as we do that, we will not be found, or found alone. We will find that you are there with us because you are still doing that to this day. Giving of yourself so that others may flourish. Form us into that, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.